Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can help me out by clicking the like or subscribe button. You can also help out the show by donating using the tip jar link in the description below. So I'm glad to be here and appreciate everybody's support. So thank you for sharing the show, hitting that like button and sending me emails. It's been, uh, it's been great to engage with everybody. So got a great show for everyone today. Had quite a day at work but I know I'm late for releasing the show, so we're just going to do it. We're going to do it live, and we're going to have a great show. Um, but today we're going to talk about a company that is trying to commercialize a female contraceptive, and the company is called Evofem, and their product is called Fexi, and it's going to be launched actually in the next few days. So I want to talk about them as the main story, and then we're going to start with some updates from Gilead, Odonate as well as Biomarin and actually we got some news from Amarin today that I'm going to touch on just very very briefly because I haven't totally incorporated it into my portfolio yet but uh, we did see some dramatic news from them so with that let's just get going and the first thing I want to talk about is the Gilead news that we heard and what we found out is that they were issued a complete response letter for the approval of filgotinib which was their treatment for rheumatoid arthritis so this came as a bit of a surprise, I would say, and Filgotinib was going to be something that replaces revenue streams that are slowly starting to fall off of patent for Gilead, and they're going to start to feel that in the form of loss of revenue. And Filgotinib was kind of a shoe-in to get approved, but the FDA issued them this complete response letter saying that they will not approve the drug unless certain conditions are met. And usually when companies receive a CRL, either it's unconditional in the sense that they don't have any recourse or it has conditions on it. And here what we found out is that the FDA wanted more data from their phase three Manta and Manta Ray studies before completing its review of the NDA. And they're specifically concerned about issues in uh, male sex organs. So Gilead is going to have to provide this data to the FDA before they'll approve it. And it looks like from what I looked at very briefly on the clinicaltrials.gov site is that the primary completion date isn't until early 2021 with a final completion date of 2024. Now Gilead is pretty savvy so I feel like they'll be able to eventually overcome these hurdles once they can provide some data. Um, so I don't see it being a long-term hindrance of the company. But we've seen the stock get hammered pretty hard since the glory days of remdesivir. And in general, Gilead's been kind of slow to adopt new therapies to their pipeline in order to maintain that growth that people expect. So hopefully with the approval of Filgotinib, they'll be able to replace those drugs that are falling off of patent and be able to maintain their value that way. But personally, no position for me from Gilead, but I thought it was interesting to point this out. Next company I want to talk about is Biomarin, and they are trading at a $14 billion market cap now, and they were also issued a complete response letter for Roctavian, and this was their hemophilia A gene therapy. And I've touched on hemophilia A and gene therapy a number of different videos, but I haven't touched the topic in a while. I did notice the CRL though, and it's interesting because the conditions that the FDA wanted in order to approve the drug was evidence from two years of data for its ongoing phase three trial to support the durability of the gene therapy. So this is obviously kind of rough for the company because the bar is rarely set this high for other companies that a two year window of therapy is gonna be maintained. This has me questioning the gene therapy space as a whole that you know other companies that I'm invested in, say Regenix Bio, if they're going to have to show two years of data to show that it has a durable effect, 
this obviously plays into the models and delays the time at which it's going to take for them to get revenue. So kind of makes me nervous about the gene therapy space, but you know, different diseases seem to have different thresholds for what the FDA wants, and it's tough to predict. So thought it was worth bringing up, and just for those who are actually following Biomarin, their last phase three patient will complete two years of follow-up in November of 2021. So if you're expecting revenue from this drug now, you're going to have to wait until 2022 probably to see any revenue. So that's a disappointment, even though the drug does help a significant number of patients. All right, moving on, I want to touch on Odonate Therapeutics, ticker symbol ODT, and they're trading now at around a $574 million market cap. For those who don't remember, I touched on this uh, a while ago. They were a short candidate that I had once I seemed like they had a, a run-up in the stock for no obvious reason, and then I sold it off in anticipation of a run-up to this event that we just saw news to. And they're commercializing a taxane that is given orally. So right now it has to be given IV, and there's a lot of complications surrounding that, a lot of hurdles that patients need to go through to get this treatment, and it's kind of tedious. So if a company can come up with an oral version, it would be much better for patients, and that's what Odonate's trying to do here. So what we heard is that their Phase three Contessa trial achieved primary endpoint, and what they were looking at is tessataxel, their drug, plus capacitabine compared to just capacitabine alone. And the results showed that the progression-free survival was significantly better in the tessataxel plus capacitabine group rather than just capacitabine alone, um, 9.8 months versus 6.9 months with a hazard ratio of 0.72, which is pretty good, and a p-value of 0.003. So this data on its own looks pretty good. The unfortunate part is the side effects were significant. So I'm reading here, grade three or over treatment emergent adverse events that occurred in over 5% of patients include neutropenia, which was 71% versus 8.3, febrile neutropenia, 12.8 versus 1.2, fatigue, hypokalemia, leukopenia, anemia, and neuropathy. And then grade two events here, we see alopecia, 8% versus 0.3%. So they're significantly higher in the tessataxel plus capacitabine group compared to capacitabine alone, but I might have a different take than most people here. And they emphasize this in their presentation when they compared the patients discontinuing due to any adverse event between the two different groups. Because at least if patients can deal with the side effects, the neutropenia, long enough to go through the treatment, then they can come back and you know replace their loss of white blood cells. What Odonate is going to argue, or what they have argued in their presentation here, is that the number of patients discontinuing treatment due to any adverse event isn't necessarily higher than other drugs that had you know, pretty substantial side effects, but they were still able to go on and get approved. The study that I'm talking about right now, tessataxel plus capacitabine, 21.3 patients discontinued treatment due to any adverse event. And if we compare this to other types of treatments, we have capacitabine plus docetaxel, and these numbers were 31% and 23%. Bevacizumab, which is Avastin, I believe, and paclitaxel, 21% and 22%. Everolimus, exemestane, 24% compared to 5%. And then one more is alpelisib, and this is at 25%. So really... Tessataxel isn't necessarily that much worse than a lot of these other drugs. So when it comes down to it, is the FDA or the advisory committee that's eventually going to come up 
going to say, yeah, the adverse events aren't good, but it's not necessarily that much worse than other drugs that have been approved in the past. Therefore, we're going to approve it given that it's breast cancer and the overall benefits of this are going to outweigh the risks associated with the side effects. So that's something that you want to consider if you are going to try and take an investment position here in anticipation of an eventual approval. So the company did also do a secondary offering and they offered 5.7 million shares at 14 and a quarter for around $80 million in profit. And their net current cash is 102 million as of Q2 with net loss of 33 million. So you can imagine this will probably give them enough of a runway until the middle of 2021. And also they're planning on submitting that NDA in 2021. So here I would imagine the FDA is going to call an advisory committee. And that's really where the rubber is going to meet the road, so to speak. And we're going to see whether or not the committee agrees that the benefits outweigh the risks associated with the treatment. And if you wanted to play that, I think that could be a high reward, low-ish risk play because the stock is trading so low right now. But personally, I'm going to stay on the sidelines and just see what happens. Now with that, let's get to our feature story for today, which is EvoFem Biosciences, ticker symbol EVFM. They're trading at about $3.5 per share, giving them a market cap of around $260-$270 million. Their Q2 2020 loss was $53 million, and this represents a 51% year-over-year increase. Their Q2 2020 total current assets is $128 million, and total current liabilities is $62 million. So net current cash is around $60 million, which says to me that they're probably going to need to raise or offer some warrants or something in order to continue to fund their business. Now, this company is entirely focused on female reproductive health, and what they have approved so far is a hormone-free, on-demand female contraceptive. And they've named it Fexi, with two X's. They got approval in May of this year, and they're going to be launching it in September of this year. They also have another compound, which is like an anti-sexually transmitted infection drug, and they're titling this Evo 100. They're planning on initiating this in Q4 of this year with top-line results in 2022. I'm not really considering any revenue from this because it seems like it's so far away that the short-term events are more likely to move the stock than this. So having said that, let's talk about Fexi. And what it is is an on-demand combination of lactic acid, citric acid, and potassium bitartrate to maintain an acidic pH. And what this does is it prevents sperm from surviving in that environment, therefore preventing fertilization of the egg and therefore acting as a contraceptive. And here's what the data looks like in their phase three, and this was published a little while ago. The effectiveness is shown here. What they're telling us is that of all the pregnancies that they evaluated, and you can look in the paper for some details, they had like a modified intent to treat group, um, which didn't include the whole group, but they were very diligent about counting cycles and you know whether or not there was a pregnancy that occurred before the study or not but the cumulative pre pregnancy percentage was 13.7% overall, and the confidence interval, 95% confidence interval, was between 10% and 17.5% in the study. And what the company kind of focuses on, rather than this effectiveness of around 87%, is this sexual satisfaction survey. So they evaluated women on what they said with their prior birth control and their current birth control, and apparently there was an increase from 16.9% to 44.5% in 
in sexual satisfaction with women who are using Fexi. Now, I find that interesting because their side effects, which I'm pulling up here, are pretty significant, I would say. Percent of women with one or more adverse events is 45.2%, and most of these adverse events were vulvovaginal burning sensation, vulvovaginal pruritus, which is itching, urinary tract infection at 5.7%, pain at 3.8%. Now, when it came to the severity of these, only 2.3% were severe, but 187 were moderate. So it's not without side effects, and I know most contraceptives also have side effects too, so depending on you know who this is being targeted towards, uh, it might be better than something they're already using. Having said that, let's talk about the market. And what I found out is that 46.8 women are using some form of contraceptive, and this is based off of CDC data. I have the link down here. But EvaFem shows these graphs here where they say that they're expecting after they penetrate the market to get 15% of the female contraceptive market. And what that means is that they are selling this to 7.02 million women in the United States. The wholesale acquisition cost for a box of Fexi is $267.50, and they expect around six to seven boxes per year are gonna be used by women. So if we do the math here, this turns into a max yearly revenue of $11.2 billion per year. Obviously, that seems like a bit of a reach, and considering that the company's only trading at around $260 million valuation right now, something is going on here. So what I'm gonna do now is go through my reasons on why I think the market is pricing this so low, given that the company itself is expecting a 15% market share. So on the one hand, you could imagine that maybe the market is just mispricing this, but I think there's some important considerations to look at before taking a position. The first one I would say is efficacy issues. So the one question that we need to ask is, are women who are comfortable with, say, 99.9 .9 effectiveness with their prior birth control going to be willing to switch to an on-demand option that only has maybe 87% effectiveness? That, I think, is going to be the real kicker and going to be a struggle for adoption here. The next thing is the side effects. So burning and itching are pretty common. If we go back here, in around 30% of patients, they get this sensation, and they could be kind of a moderate side effect. So I think that might deter adoption, even though the sexual satisfaction data was pretty much in favor of Fexi. And I think the third thing that's going to be tricky here is the difficulty with on-demand. And the reason for that is that oral hormonal methods, IUDs, as well as injectable methods, make up around 50% of contraceptives right now. And these are specifically not on-demand methods. So I think EvoFem has their work cut out for them to try and convince women that those methods aren't as good and that using an on-demand method is better. Now, obviously there's side effects associated with all of those contraceptives, but to convince women that an on-demand option is gonna be better, when right now they don't have to deal with doing anything on demand, just following their protocols appropriately, I think that's going to make it a little bit tough for Fexi adoption. Then the last thing that I think is relevant here is the warrant situation. So I went through all of this detail to put it in the presentation, but I think I'm going to skim through it because it's not super relevant, and the market cap that we're looking at actually includes the potential dilution from warrants. And basically to give a bit of a primer on warrants is they're a derivative that gives the buyer the right but not the obligation to acquire 100 shares of common stock per warrant at a certain strike price by a certain date. 
And it's important to note that this is dilutive. So normally in the options market, you would have to buy shares on the open market and sell them. But in this case, it creates shares, thus diluting the value of the stock. And you know, I'll get to the kicker right now is the total shares outstanding are 57.7 million with potentially dilutive securities of 19.1 million shares. So if all the warrants are exercised, you'd have to add 19.1 million shares to their total shares outstanding. And there's a bunch of different dates and we'll get into that in a second. But basically in this year, EvoFem offered to sell Baker X amount of promissory notes as well as 5 million shares worth of warrants at a strike price of $2.44 with a five-year term. And then the most important part here is looking at the total warrant situation. So I'm showing a chart here from their 10Q showing all the different exercise prices and all the different exercise periods that exist here. And you know some of these expire in 2022, a lot of them in 2025 and up to 2026. But the likelihood of exercising really only is there if the stock is above that price. So I think the most highly likely ones to be exercised are these $2.44 ones to the Baker Bros. And if we look at the total potential dilution, it would be 19.1 million shares. And that is included in the market cap that I provided before. So all of that is just to be kind of transparent when it comes to this is the warrant situation that we're dealing with. So my verdict on the stock overall is no position. I think that launching a drug in this environment is extremely risky, especially one that is not as good when it comes to efficacy and also has a side effect profile that could deter adoption. The Baker Bros, on the other hand, do have a history of success. So if you wanna follow them, I wouldn't blame you for doing so. The valuation itself could be attractive, and here's kind of the kicker, right? It's if EvoFem can generate around $250, $260 million worth of sales, and what that means is getting 156,000 patients on Fexi, and really that's only 0.33% of the total contraceptive market. But if they can do that, then the valuation is definitely very attractive right now. It's only one-time sales. So that's really the game that you're playing. I am just kind of hesitant that in this environment, it is uh, likely that they can do that. now. The company itself has talked about their sales force and their strategy, so I want to touch on that as well as payer support. And what they say in terms of payer support, and just to preempt this a little bit, is this is the ability for private formularies or Medicaid or Medicare to pay for this. And what they say is that they anticipate that they will achieve 50 to 60% commercial review at launch with the remaining 40% of payers reviewing by year end of 2020. So that's very good. I feel like patients are definitely not going to want to take a birth control that they have to pay for if there's a competitor that is being covered by private or public options. In terms of their sales team, they said that they plan to commercially launch Fexi in September of this year with a best-in-class hybrid sales force comprising of regional business representatives, regional business managers, a telesales communication platform, and a self-guided virtual healthcare provider learning platform. So I think the telesales thing is probably pretty good, uh, assuming they can have a physician there because obviously this is gonna be Rx only. They say that Salesforce recruitment is underway with an emphasis on hiring experienced, successful healthcare sales reps who are able to leverage their established relationships to gain access to healthcare providers for Fexi, even in the COVID-19 environment. So with regards to the COVID environment, I took this data from some article that showed that at the 
peak of COVID, we'll say, between March and June, the cumulative doctor's visit deficit was at negative 37%. But if you look at the week of June 14th, that was only at negative 11%. So people are definitely going back to the doctor now. That is a good thing for EvoFem, but I still think that they have their work cut out for them for the reasons that I outlined before. And that's what I got for EVFM. Let me know what you think in the comments or uh, send me a tweet on Twitter at Matthew Lepard. So the next little while we're going to be paying attention to election season. The DNC and RNC conventions happened pretty recently and everything now just seems Trump versus Biden and the riots continue and the racial tension in the country continues. So it's going to be kind of a bumpy road, I think, until the election. And assuming it's a clear victor, I don't know that even the election is going to calm these tensions. So we'll see about that. But Otherwise, we are now in the last month of Q3 of this year, which means that Q4 is coming up. And I'm excited about Q4 because we're going to have updates from TGTX, Trill, BTAI, ETNB, as well as ATNM. So we're going to have a lot to talk about, a lot of spicy updates that I'm looking forward to getting into. And I think the last thing I'll comment on, and I didn't include this in my portfolio wrap-up because it happened just today, and we heard that the oral arguments for the Ameren appeal lawsuit happened today. And somebody on Twitter that was following it very closely basically said that Ameren has a very, very low percent chance of getting a reversal from the appellate court. So for that reason, I sold all my stock in the low fives. It's a very disappointing thing, and you really never know how these things are going to go. I thought it was worth the risk to hold after the negative decision against Ameren went out, but... You can't win them all, and it's unfortunate that I had such a large position, but this is a good lesson that all of these decisions are very risky, so make sure you do your own due diligence because all of this is just for entertainment purposes, but in this case, I lost a, a lot of money on that too. So it's too bad, but for a quick portfolio wrap-up, and this is outdated, this is based off of last Friday, but I put in the KPTI that I added as well as the BTAI, and we're looking at negative 8%-ish year-to-date, and this is trailing all of the other indices, but like I said, Q4 is going to be huge for me, so I'm really looking forward to those updates that come out from there. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up, but I want to thank everybody for watching, everybody for listening. Have some uh, good stuff on the show coming up, so keep your eyes out for that. It should be good. And yeah, thanks everybody for the support, and we'll see you next time.